all around the world, people love to celebrate. Somebody's going to be celebrating today. Somebody in Germany or somebody in Argentina is going to be celebrating later on today. We celebrate graduations, we celebrate weddings, we celebrate anniversaries, some great performance that was done. We will celebrate athletic contests, political victories, and I titled the sermon today, VE Day. VE Day is the day when the Allies celebrated their victory over Nazi Germany. VE Day, victory in Europe. It was either May 8th or May 9th. May 8th if you're on the western half of the world, May 9th if you're on the eastern half of the world. There is an iconic image of this day, and kids, don't look at this on your cell phone right now. Parents, don't show this to your kids on your cell phone right now but you can do it later. There's an iconic image that kind of captures the spirit of VE Day as much as anything else. All of the adults here will remember the image. It's the image of the sailor embracing and kissing the woman in the midst of the celebration, whether it's a parade or just a gathering of people. But that image of the sailor kissing the woman is just this great image of the joy and relief that must have accompanied this day after so many years of warfare. Exodus 15 is VE Day for Israel. It's victory in Egypt. And though we don't have a kiss, at least we don't have a kiss that's described for us in this passage. My, my sanctified imagination likes to think there was much kissing going on in this day. Nevertheless, we don't have one written about. The song nevertheless captures for us, it must the joy and relief that the people were experiencing, saved not only from the immediate danger which had just faced them on the other side of the Red Sea, but from 400 years of oppression, slavery, and people wanting to, pharaohs wanting to kill their children at various points along the way. I want us to consider then today the celebratory aspects of this passage, the substance of the celebration, the form of the celebration, the propriety of the celebration, and then the integrity of the celebration. First, the substance of the celebration. It is surprisingly easy for content to be lost in the context of celebration. And you know this, you've experienced this. Just think for a moment of, of our holidays that we experience in this country, not that they're uh, not that they're necessarily all ours, but Labor Day, Memorial Day, Fourth of July, and then think of other ones like Thanksgiving and even Easter and Christmas. Think how easy it is for us, for the culture as a whole, to actually have a day of celebration and it becomes more or less just a day off of work. It's a day when we don't have to go into work, we're glad, maybe we have a, a barbecue and some friends over, but contemplation of the content of that day can easily be pushed to the side or easily be forgotten about or easily be simply mentioned in a sentence, one sentence at some point during the day, and then that's it. You don't think about it anymore after that. But in this celebration that we have after the deliverance through the Red Sea, there is a song that is full of very specific content. It's poetic content. It's not trying to be exact in terms of the history of it. It's trying to put it in the form of poetry and imagery and the song that was being sung by them, but it's full of content. There is no bare, you ready for the quotes? 
We just want to praise you, God, for who you are. There's no just. There's no just who you are, period, on to the next thing. There is a long, reflective meditation on who God is and exactly what he's done for the people. Who is he? He is the Lord. He's my strength. He's my song. He's become my salvation. He is my God. The Lord is a man of war. One of the metaphors that is used. He's Yahweh. He's majestic in his holiness. He is reigning as king. Who is he? He's those things. What has he done? He's triumphed. He's thrown the horse and the rider into the sea. Now, I, by the way, I know that all of these things could form sermons in and of themselves, and we could just park on a verse or two and just work our way through it, but we're not going to do that. I'm going to look at it a little bit broader than that. So he's triumphed. He's thrown the horse and rider into the sea. He's shattered. He's overthrown. He's, he's caused the enemy to sink down. Awesome and glorious are your deeds. You're the God who does wonders. You've shattered them and you've delivered us. You're the God who does that, allowing us to walk through on the dry ground and then looking forward. You're the God who has led us to safety to this point, and you're the God who we trust is going to lead us home to the sanctuary, to the mountains which are described later in the passage. And this content, when you look at it, has a movement and a flow to it. Now, I'm going to come back just a moment to the structure of it, but if, if you think of the flow here just for a moment to try and put it in broad categories, verses 1 through 6 kind of give a broad brush description of the event, the deliverance through the Red Sea and who God is and the enemies that were consumed, kind of like a Genesis 1 broad picture of it, whereas the next section, especially as you go on 7 down through 10 or down through 11, you get a little bit more specific at least specific in terms of describing the enemy, the taunts that were being raised by the Egyptians, what they said they were going to do when they caught up once again with this people whom they had let go for reasons that they cannot now remember. The end of the song, though, and this, this really goes from 12 forward or 13 forward into uh, in, in, the psalm, in the song, it, it, it looks to God carrying the people forward. So it takes this aspect of what God has done, and it now projects prophetically and reflectively on how God will take the people into the land, what will be the response of the Canaanites. It's a little bit of an idealized picture, as we will see real soon coming up here. Not all the Canaanites immediately melted away, as is described here. But it's trying to say, God, this is what you have done, and now we're prophetically looking forward to the fact that we're not done. We haven't arrived yet. You're going to take us to the safe place. You're going to take us to the holy hill, the place where you abide. So it has a movement to it, all of this content. And it ends with a, this great phrase in verse 16, a purchased people, and a purchased people by God who then, because of the grace of God, become a planted people. Purchase flowers, take flowers home, plant the flowers. God has purchased His people, taking His people home, planting them. This is where I want you to be. This is where I'm going to establish you 
as my people. Flowers are pretty. This song isn't. It's a violent, brutal kind of song. It, it admittedly has a good end. I like the end, planting, and then and, and that's, that's a nice end, purchased. But we'll get back to the violence in just a moment. That's, that's the content of the celebration. Let's consider the form of the celebration. When we think of those celebrations that I described earlier, we also recognize that celebrating comes in all sorts of ways. People do all kinds of different things to celebrate. Sometimes it involves fireworks or presents being exchanged, maybe a special meal, maybe crab cakes on your birthday. Streamers, that's coming, don't worry. Uh, streamers, banners, all sorts of good things. The wave, dancing, singing, getting drunk, turning over cars. You know, when college teams win whatever their sport is, you're like, what in the world happened out in the streets? What, how did this celebration turn this way? So people celebrate all sorts of ways, and some of them are good and some of them are bad. And one of the things we're going to have the opportunity, opportunity to do as we look at the book of Exodus is consider this very important question of how does God want us to celebrate? In fact, much of the following chapters of Exodus are going to deal with that theme. By the way, you know that in the summer I oftentimes will go to a shorter book. I haven't done that with Exodus, obviously, because I'm trying to get us to the foot of Sinai. I'm going to get us to the foot of Sinai, and then we're going to stop Exodus, and we'll come back to it in January or February. But that's why I'm continuing on and pressing forward with this. But God is going to give specific instruction about what is, what is good celebration, which is to say, celebration that He enjoys. I'll give you a hint. God doesn't like surprise parties. He doesn't want you to think hard and come up with a delightful way to please Him. He'll tell you. He'll tell you what is pleasing to Him. One of the responsibilities that we will have as we consider this now as New Covenant Christians is to try to ascertain what would have been pleasing worship at this time in the history of God's people as He's calling them out, as He's assembling them before Christ has come, and then what is pleasing worship to God on this side of the cross, our side of the cross, because those are two different things. They have principles which carry over between both things, and we're going to see that exactly today, but there are also many elements, elements that we have already encountered in Exodus, in the Passover itself, which are not abiding celebratory elements for the people of God. Declared feasts, sacrifices for the firstborn, the Passover itself. It takes some work and some concentration to say, okay, I see that this is prescribed here. I see that it is done here, but what then is appropriate? What ought we be doing in the context of New Covenant worship? I'm sorry, I've said even now more than I intended to say about that. But we'll have opportunity to reflect quite a bit on that. What's good celebration? What's bad celebration in terms of the form? But for here, let's just look at a few elements regarding the form of celebration. And the first obvious one that we look at is the fact that this is a song. Not surprising, Moses is singing it, the people are singing it, Miriam is singing it, 
And, and this, we can say, at least in terms of the form itself, singing is something that God is always pleased with. He's pleased with it, whether it is in the Old Covenant. He's pleased with it in the New Covenant, when God's people are to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And clearly, if we look forward to the book of Revelation, Revelation 15, we read a little bit earlier, describing the Song of Moses. And by the way, the Song of Moses that is described there in Revelation can be parts of this song from here in Exodus chapter 15, could also be parts of Moses' song as it is recorded for us at the end of Deuteronomy. This isn't Moses' only song that he wrote. But nevertheless, clearly themes here are picked up in the Revelation 15. So, God's people sing into eternity. We can be sure that as a form of celebration, God is pleased with singing. And the song that he sings is full of this content that we've articulated that is thoughtfully, carefully composed. Now, lots of people have looked at this. Lots of scholars have taken a look at this song and tried to understand its parts, tried to understand the poetry, its order, its structure. And there are different approaches to it. I'm just going to tell you real quickly, and I don't want you to get bogged down with this necessarily, but at least to give you something to think about a little later, how I think from others that this song is structured for us. I think that in verses 1 and 18, you've got an intro and a closing to the song. So the, those, those two verses provide the, 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 the bookends of the song. And then inside of that, there appear to be three stanzas that are composed. Uh, so the stanzas would go from 2 to 6, from 7 to 11, from 12 to 17. Two, the first two of the verses within those stanzas seem to reflect on God and God and His power, God and His deliverance. The next two seem to focus on the enemy, and in particular, if you want to look at this later, you can look at the descriptions of the enemy and the sinking of the enemy, as the enemy is either stone or lead or still like a stone. And then finally, a verse that comes forth in praise to God as the final verse within that particular stanza. So it seems to me that we've got three stanzas with an opening and a closing as the structure of the song. And, and that's what you see when you think of so many of the songs of Scripture, think, for example, of the Psalter, you see a structure that is very similar to this. It is a celebration of who God is, of what God has done, and then it's a projection of that to say, this God is with us. And this God who is with us, who has done all of these things, who has accomplished this on our behalf, is the God who's going to lead us on from here, is the God who is going to take us home. Let me, let, me, let me point out how this applies to us in two very quick ways. One, this is kind of the structure of our worship service. It has an intro, a call to worship. It has a close, a benediction. And in the middle, it follows this kind of flow of what God has done, who God is, how we respond to who God is, and a looking for God to lead us forward as do many of our hymns incorporate that same structure as well. The first hymn that we sang today was, uh, it was really Psalm 103. Um, but nevertheless, if you look at that hymn later, you can see this very same structure work through it. If you think of hymns like, And Can It Be? or Abide With Me, you say, see this exact same structure, a reflection on God, who He is, 
what he has done for me personally, and then a sense that God is taking me to a destination that he's with me, and that I want him to be with me, and I want to serve him along the way towards that destination. That's part of the structure. It's the form of celebration with which God is pleased. It's the way that the story goes along, that God moves along the story, which is glorifying to him. Again, there are tons of other things we could comment on here, but clearly one other element of form that you've got here is that the men and the women are singing together. And children, there's no mention of you in this passage, but I suspect clearly that the children are taking up this song as well. Perhaps, and this is a little bit of conjecture because nobody can really figure out exactly why we've got the Miriam part tagged onto the end of this, perhaps it was sung antiphonally, so perhaps men sang one, one part and then women sang another part of the song and it went back and forth. Or perhaps, and, and, or maybe not an or, and might be better to say it this way, one of the things that I think is captured as Miriam continues on with the tambourines, with the dancing, and with the song itself is to say this simple thing. When you get a good song, when you've heard a good song, and the good song is over, and it's the next day, what do you want? You want to hear it again. Can I, can I hear that song again? Can I, can I play that song again? I think that was a good song, and I'd like to hear it again. And so one gets the sense that as soon as Miriam starts, we're into this idea of this isn't a one-off song. This isn't something that Moses just sang for the day, and it was really nice, and everybody enjoyed singing with him that day. The idea rather seems to be, get it into your heads, get it into your minds, get it into your hearts. Let this be the song that kind of floats around in the back of your mind when you're doing things, when you're not paying attention to things, and you realize, I'm singing some song. Sing this one again, Israel. Sing of what God has accomplished for you. And of course, we're still singing elements of this song into Revelation. <laughs> So, uh, so the song's got a long way to go in terms of playing out this song and getting to know it. All right, let's look from, from the form now to the propriety of the celebration that is described here. Is it appropriate, right, good to sing a song like this in this context? Remember, the Egyptians have been killed. Lots of Egyptians have been killed. Yahweh is described in the song as a man of war. He's violent. And if you look at the end of chapter 14, verse 30, Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. This, this song has kind of a, a nasty setting around it. It's a song sung near dead bodies. And so you kind of look at this and go, okay, is it right? Is it right that we sing a song like this? Clearly, in this song, this God is not a pacifist. He is not domesticated. He has not been declawed. And he is not, as we conceive of the word, at least in our casual usage of it, he's not nice. He's good, but he's clearly not safe. 
So should you sing a song like this celebrating the defeat of the enemy as much as it does celebrate the victory of God? It does celebrate the victory of God, but it doesn't make light of the defeat of the enemy. And if you sing it, what's the melody? What's the key? The scale, what, what is it sung in? Now, I have to give you a pastoral pet peeve. It is a pastoral pet peeve that I feared from the moment I started preaching in Exodus because I knew that this day would come. We would be faced with this song, and this song troubles me. It gets down in me, and, I, and, and it says, can, can you sing it? Is it right? Now, if you were raised in the church, if you went to VBSs as a child, or if you plugged in little We Sing Bible Song tapes for your kids, you probably heard this song sung. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. Bum, bum, bum. I won't continue anymore. It's a children's ditty to this song. Now, you can't really complain about the words, because if you complain about the words, you're complaining about the word. What I want to complain about is the melody. This is not a lighthearted affair. I need to know the difference between lighthearted songs, which are fine, good in their place, no problem with lighthearted, fun songs, and songs that perhaps ought have a minor chord, a weightiness to the music as it is presented to us. Because the scene is awful. It's great. I'm saved. But it's awful at the exact same time. This, the, the singing of this song needs to go along with the verses in Scripture that tell us that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That has to inform how we sing this song and how we understand what is presented here before us. Is there a satisfaction in God that justice has been done? in the death of the wicked. Yes, there is. Is the death of the wicked in the plan of God? Clearly it is. Is the holiness of God vindicated? Is His glory lifted up in the death of the wicked? Absolutely yes. But we must be careful not to conflate the delight of God in the deliverance of His people and the satisfaction of God in the death of the wicked. Don't make those two things the same thing. Delight is not the same as the satisfaction of divine justice taking place. This is not the end, but nevertheless, I'm going to pause to give us two quick applications that relate, I think, to this exact point, the propriety of this. Do not make the mistake and this is a tempting mistake for us to make. Kids, I'm going to say something right now, and I'm saying kids, but I mean if you're 25 and under. Okay, so I, that's broader than kids, sorry. You've got to hear this, because this is a temptation that you face. Do not make the mistake of thinking that this God who is described in Exodus 15 is not the God we worship. He's not a different God. Do not let the pluralism of our day 
the acceptance of all things in our day as equally valid, as equally good, as equally true, infect you to the point where the only God you can possibly believe in is a tamed, impotent, passive God. You must beware. You can sit here and say, no, 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 we get it, Pastor. We'll, we'll be aware of those things. We won't fall into that. But the infiltration of the world and the message that you will hear is of a greater tolerance than you will see here, or of at least a tolerance of things that God Himself will not tolerate. Be careful. The world wants to tell you about a God who will not judge. The Bible does not describe a judgeless God. He will judge, and He will judge people, people. But in the New Covenant, what has taken place is God has delayed the judgment. God is, in effect, to put it in the words of this passage, or, or in, the, in the metaphor, not the metaphor, but the reality of this passage now, extending it to a metaphor, God has and is holding back the waters. The waters here represent the chaos of the world, the judgment of God being used against the chaotic forces that would seek to undo the people of God. And God is holding them back in the new covenant. And He's holding them back for a very specific purpose get more people through on dry ground. But do not mistake that kindness of God, that patience of God, the long-suffering to be a different God, to be a God who's changed his mind. Uh, I was kind of grumpy in those days. I'm better now. Not the case. Same God. Judgment delayed. Secondly, we see the enemy more clearly than the Israelites did. We see, and I've quoted this before, so I promise not to belabor the point, but we see that this battle that we are engaged in is not so much a battle against Egyptians. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual forces who oppose the kingdom of God and set themselves up in opposition to the kingdom of God and the people of God. And therefore, as a result of that, when you and I sing this song, the song has changed. Here's what I mean. A mighty fortress is our God. To go with another hymn here for a moment. A mighty fortress is our God. Now, Luther, Luther had his problems. He had his problems with various Germans, with Jews, with all sorts of things. But at least in a mighty fortress of, is our God, he got it right. Because it's not about Egyptians, and it's not about Germans, and it's not about Jews. It's though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. It's the prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. In that hymn, he got it right. The hymn is changed. The song is changed. I'm not concerned right now with God swallowing up Egyptians. In fact, I'm, up, I'm the opposite of that. 
I'm praying that God will save Egyptians. Egyptians, get across now. The dry land is being held out for you. Algerians, get across. Jews, get across. Germans, Argentinians, Americans, Iraqi, Iranian, get across, get across now. There's a big, wide, dry land with waters piled up on either side. It is the time. It is the time to get across. So our song is slightly different. Finally, let's consider this, the integrity of the celebration. All of us know by our own personal experience, we don't need the Bible to tell us this, we all know that it is possible to go through the motions, right? To sing songs, to even sing words, to look spiritual, to look like as you're singing the words of a particular hymn, you're lost in the wonder of the hymn, and actually you're lost in something completely different. We all know that, right? I mean, that's part of our common experience. So we have to talk about the integrity of this. Moses begins the song with I. I will sing unto the Lord. My Lord is my God. It's become my salvation. The intention here is not that Moses is singing a solo. He's not singing a solo. The people are singing along with him. The intention of writing the song in this particular way is so that when the Israelite sings it or when we sing it, we are able with our hearts to sing it in just that way. We are able to say about this song that it's not just a statement, it's not just words, but rather it's my statement. It's my celebration that's going on here. It's my confession of my God who saved me. Not just impersonal that it happened sometime out there. This, you see the parallels of this to the New Testament, right? You see where I have to go preaching right now. You have to go to Thomas, right? This is the opportunity for, the, for, for Thomas to put his hands against Jesus to see with his own eyes and to then cry out, my Lord and my God. Not just the Lord, the God, a Lord, a God, mine. And that's what Moses wants as he composes the song in this particular way. I, I can't tell, honestly. Well, sometimes I can tell whether you're going through the motions or not. You know what, if it makes you feel better, I can always tell. <laughs> that's, not, that's not true. I can't always tell. Calvin, John Calvin, doubts the integrity of the people in singing this song. He calls it into question. Given what we saw in the chapter before, on the other side of the sea, when the complaint started, and given, frankly, what we will see as this chapter ends, and chapter 16 goes on, and chapter 17 goes on. Calvin says, I don't think there's a, a real heart in their singing. Moses is making them sing, but they're not singing this song willingly. Is the way Calvin looks at this. We clearly see that they're going to have a lack of faithfulness demonstrated very quickly for us in the exact same chapter. Exodus 14, the, the chapter ended with this rather positive statement, they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. But it does appear that that belief was a bit shallow and fickle. 
when times became difficult, when they became hard. It's very hard, and in fact, it's impossible to make a blanket statement. We're talking about a vast nation of people who are standing there, so there's no way to say, this is what everybody was thinking, or what everybody wasn't thinking. There's no point in doing that. But rather, the calling, the, the, the enjoining that comes upon every single one of us as we take up a song, and, and the question is this. Is this song of salvation, is the song of salvation, is it yours? Is it your song? Because it has to be. Yours, my song, I. It has to be. That is what God requires. It is what God demands. Nothing less than that the song of salvation becomes your song. You and I, brothers and sisters, have been given something better than this. It's good. It would have been a good day, I think. It would have been a good day. But you and I have been given a better deliverance. We've been given a better Moses. We've been given a better song to sing. You and I have a better VE day. A better VE day. We get to celebrate together the death of death, the destruction of Satan, the overthrow of the kingdom of darkness, truth overcoming lies, life instead of death, blessing instead of curse. That's the victory song that you and I get to sing. Why? For the clear reason Jesus has been raised. He's died. He's purchased the people for Himself. And now the great victory has taken place. The great way through Jesus has been opened up to His people. Moses concludes the song with these words, the Lord will reign forever and ever. You and I get the filled-in picture of that, and it's better not to say that's not the right way to say it. It's not the right way to say filled-in picture. You and I get the reality of which this was only an image. This is an image of the greater reality that you and I have, of the greater song that you and I are able to sing, a song which picks up this and fulfills it, and it sounds like this. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. It's filled in. I'm not looking at Moses. I'm not looking at the sea. I'm looking at Jesus, who is the one who reigns forever and ever. For them, it was just a shadow. They got it. They got the idea that one was going to come. But you and I, you and I have this made more sure through the life of Jesus Christ, through the ministry of Jesus Christ, and through the Word through which the Holy Spirit now illumines us so that we can say, Jesus is the one. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ. That's a good song of celebration. Friends, we have been created with the capacity to celebrate. 
with the capacity to recognize that which is good, right, true, honorable, and worthy of celebration, which is simply another set, way to say that you and I have been created with the capacity to worship and more than that, with the desire to worship. Now, because of sin, we substitute other things, ourself, other gods, idols, into the place where God would be. The gospel of Jesus Christ is an opportunity, and this is perhaps too soft a word, to recalibrate that, to recalibrate within us the desire to celebrate and to get it set right. Now it takes work. It doesn't happen all at once in terms of our ability to worship God well. But he transforms and he renews the mind to lead us into the right worship of him. We have heard the content of this song, the content of the victory of our God and of his Christ. And as I said, there is no kissing in this chapter. But perhaps the response, if you want to think again of the image of VE Day, is a Psalm 2 response. Kiss the sun. Kiss the sun while there is time, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. Or a later psalm, this is the place where righteousness and peace kiss each other. The kiss is part of the celebration because the kiss says it's done, it's finished. The opportunity for warmth, love, embracing, and affection is now set before us. May God grant us much grace as a people so that we embrace the sun so that we celebrate well and learn to celebrate better throughout our lives. Let's pray.